0: Welcome to a Trashy Divorces bonus episode. Yeah,
1: if you're looking at the calendar and you're like, "It's not Sunday. It's What's not going on around here." Sunday. I'm Alicia. I'm Stacy. We're bringing you a little a little Patreon bonus. A little holiday treat. We're moving into the month of December in the year of 2020. We thought it might be a little bit fun to put out the first episode of our American Woman series happening over on Patreon this month. Mm-hmm. We're looking at feminine archetypes and uh darling an example an epitome of that type throughout the generations we started with the feminine archetype of the gibson girl in the tale of evelyn nesbitt sure she she of the crime of the century
0: 1906 back in 1906 there were others
1: oh i don't know i feel like oj ranks high i don't know that 1906 crime of the century yeah it was good hope you dig it It is a great time to sign up for Patreon. It is a great time or to sign up Patreon for your trash panda in your life. That's true. For two bucks a month, you get early ad-free episodes and trashy tidbits on the weekly. Mm -hmm. I mean, besides supporting us, our little independent podcast, Living Here the Dream. For five bucks a month, you get all that stuff. You still get to support us early ad-free trashy tidbits plus access to all of our series <laughs> ease that have happened.
0: Yeah, we've done a lot. We have a lot of ongoing stuff. Um, some of our favorite work goes to Patreon because we try to keep, you know, the main show sort of focused on what it is. We get to branch out and explore and, like, do, do trashy
1: justice or fun with done or, you know, any of those things happening over there. That's it. And sometimes it's hard. Like, we've got 500 episodes over there almost, so... You subscribe to Patreon and you're like, whoa, where do I even start? Start with American Woman. On that $5 level, you'll have access to every series that has come before the first season of Fun With Dunn, the first season of Trashy Tutors, Ocean's Eleven, Side Pieces, Midford Sisters, as well as continuing access to new series. If you are a $10 supporter, you get content every Wednesday. There's a whole nother realm of different topics that happen over there. Same with twenty five dollar Thursday, it's a great time if you're looking for a gift for you or a gift for your trash panda.
0: Annual subscriptions mean you can lock that in and not think about it again for like a full two year. Two months free
1: of mm-hmm. the whole year. You get to support us. You get great trash candy pretty much on the regular. Uh, not pretty much absolutely on the regular. Absolutely on the regular. Yeah. All Sunday right. through Sunday through Thursday. Yeah, it's so much fun. We hope you liked this episode. You like it because it's true crime. I do like it because it's true crime.
0: <laughs> it's it's true crime. I mean, it's it's creepy crawly true crime. There's some true crime.
1: I'll find a way to get in the stories I want to tell to Trashy Divorces. and Yeah, you will. Mostly that happens on Patreon. Yep. Hope y'all like it. Hope y'all like this little bonus. Stay well. Stay safe. Stay trashy. Enjoy. You, you ready to go, go, go? <laughs> yes, let's go, go, go. <laughs> let's do it.
0: Alicia, you've told me that your story today is both trashy and terrible. Both of those things are true. So I I did my treadmill time early, and I'm now, I poured a Bloody Mary, and I'm ready for whatever you got. Welcome. Welcome to December, everyone. To
1: December. First
0: of December, last month of this shit show. Not, Not, I mean, not us, not our show. 2020 is what I meant. There's reason
1: to believe. Maybe this year will be better. Yeah. The last. Hey, welcome. Hey, welcome, it's American woman. Oh, right. Our new Tuesday. Welcome special. to the December Tuesday series at the five dollar level.
0: Fantastic. And end up.
1: Oh yeah. End up this month. <laughs> every Tuesday in December, we're going to take a spin into some of the classic feminine archetypes, archetypes that have defined the decades within our country, within the United States, and delve into a deeper story about the darling, the epitome of that type. Or one of them, anyway. Okay, essentially, there are a lot of trashy stories that I've wanted to tell for a very long time, and this was a great way to pull them together. So, five Tuesdays in (laughs) December, here we are, American Woman. The it girl, the girl on the scene, the feminine ideal held up to be some kind of model or inspiration there is one. There is one in every decade. There kind of is, mm-hmm. yeah. Kind of, yeah, the twiggy. Well, and there's normally going on with that person that the public doesn't know about or might well know about soon. We're going to start this week with the American side of the Gilded Age. We've been in the Mitford Sisters for the last month in November in our Tuesday series, so I figured we'd hop back across the pond for this first episode, focusing on the first decade of the 20th century and looking at the Gibson girl and the very model of that type herself, Evelyn Nesbitt. Tell me more. When we talk about the Gibson girl. Yeah, this is not a story I know well. I've only, I've come across it in researching other things, but. Hold on to your socks, honey. Okay. When we talk about the Gibson girl, what do we mean? Evelyn Nesbitt is the model that Charles Dana Gibson uses to model the perfect woman in the first decade of the United States. But I don't know. What's the Gibson girl? Seriously. She's the ideal woman of the early 1900s. This is the archetype that women turn to in fashion, in society. So Charles Dana Gibson is doing these pen and ink drawings of the epitome of the perfect woman of the time and it makes him a legend let's just do a little bit about charles dana gibson here he's been mentioned in one of your stories caress crosby i believe Mm -hmm. he he she was one of his models for this so charles gibson is a kid gets sick and his dad is like here's a sketch pad why don't you learn how to draw? Keep yourself busy. Kid. Amuse yourself. So Charles Daniel Gibson's typhoid gonna draw. Charlie. Yeah, he's going to draw silhouettes, and he's kind of gaining some street cred as an artist, even as young as the age of twelve. Does go to school, has to leave because of financial things with the family at nineteen. But Charles Gibson is going to get a gig at Life Magazine, which, believe it or not, is the brand new publication in oh, eighteen eighty-five. <laughs> okay. And does all this uh, satire for the time. And Charles Gibson will also work for a magazine, I love this, called Tidbits. (laughs) (laughs) Which time will eventually take over. Creates the Gibson girl back as early as 1890. She's the image of perfect femininity. Charles Gibson will describe her as the American girl to all the world. Susan E. Meyer will describe the Gibson girl this way in her book, America's Great Illustrators. She was taller than the other women currently seen in the pages of magazines, infinitely more spirited and independent, yet altogether feminine. She appeared in a stiff shirtwaist, her soft hair piled into a chignon, topped by a big plumed hat. Her flowing skirt was hiked up in the back with just a hint of bustle. She was poised and patrician. Though she was always well-bred, there often lurked a flash of mischief in her eyes. She would smile, but she was never seen laughing. Further adding to her enchanting persona of self-assurance. I love women who don't laugh. Oh my God, that's a lot of pressure, right? It's a- like you got to have an hourglass figure, a corset, upswept hair with flowing curls, and charm and wit and like this is the entire package but you never go too far to actually laugh no it's a a woman who's successful at every level good looks charming socially astute uh this is the (coughs) archetype which says even everyday girls can still act like aristocrats right it makes sense american girls have been looping across the pond for a lot of years in american Girls marry British peers. Sure. Right? It's a lot to live up to, this ideal, this type. We're exotic. (laughs) Okay, the big reveal, I think, in Five Tuesdays that you're going to get, hint, hint, be what the fuck you want to be because types are crap and they're eventually going to screw you over. But alas, we begin.
0: Yeah, we're big fans of authenticity here at Trashy Divorces. Evelyn Nesbitt
1: is the epitome. Of the Gibson Girl, and will be our focus for real life archetype this week. Evelyn's gonna be breaking into the scene as an artist model in the turn of the century. And if she looks familiar to you, you might recognize her face as Evelyn Nesbitt was the model used to craft Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. If her name or the details of what you're about to hear sound familiar, Evelyn Nesbitt is, I don't know, mythologized in a way that the legend has overtaken what the real story is. There is a film, her story actually is told in a film that comes out in 1955 called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, which you know about because it starred Joan Collins, previous Trashy Divorces alum in the role she took over from Marilyn Monroe because Marilyn was deemed too old. (laughs) Evelyn Nesbitt also is going to have an appearance in book and song form. She is in a book called Ragtime, which is turned into a play and she features in a little bit called Crime of the Century, which this is in 1906. It is the crime of the century Far more explosive than OJ and Nicole. Uh, like, this is it, it's the best story you've never heard of.
0: Yeah, I'm... Is, Crime of the century. Is it okay if I ask whether she's the perpetrator or the victim or a witness? Can we get that out a in the front? A witness and a victim. She doesn't die. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, she does is not die. Is this the end of Evelyn Nesbit
1: here at the... <laughs> no, Evelyn... Is okay. She's the only not villain in this story. Everybody else is a fucking villain. Wonderful. Okay. So, uh, wrapping up, she may sound familiar. I don't know. Did you watch Boardwalk Empire? I have not. Although, it's sort of, it's on my list. It's just kind of low on my list. So, the character Jillian is loosely based on Evelyn Nesbitt. Like, her mythology is probably what you know about. But the story is far more sordid and trashy. Let's get to it. Again, lots of villains in this story. Evelyn Nesbitt is not a villain. She's the only person in this story who's not a villain. Hmm. It's terrible. I guess you're setting expectations here. Let's do this.
0: (laughs) Everyone sucks but her.
1: It's kind of (laughs) true. Florence Evelyn Nesbitt is a Christmas Day baby. She's born December 24th. 1884 or 1885 there was some wiggle room in people's well,
0: biographies back
1: then. Hospital records were burned in a in a fire and sure. Evelyn's mom, well, shoulda put them in the cloud, guys. No, Evelyn's mom is a villain number 1. She's a piece of work. We'll get there. Okay. The family's doing fine. They live in a town outside of Pittsburgh. Evelyn's dad is an attorney. Mom is a homemaker. There's a son, that soon follows after Evelyn. So mom, dad, two kids, everything's groovy. Evelyn Nesbitt loves her father. And he's a unicorn parent, right? Dance, be sassy. Do, like he encourages Evelyn to do what she wants to do. Which is great until she's 10 when dad dies at the age of 40. Leaving the family penniless. Well, wow. Mom's not business savvy. Isn't making a living as a dressmaker or a seems Like, mom doesn't. Mom is incapable of. Yeah. That. Mom gets loaned funds to open a boarding house and run it. But she's shit at that career, too. So mom has two kids to take care of. She'll end up pawning the younger, her younger son off on friends and family. When Evelyn's like 13 or so, mom is going to head to Philly. To try to make a better life. Leaves the kids. And mom gets a job at Wanamaker's department store. Works 12 hours a day, six days a week, but gets a little bit more financially stable. Sends for the kids. And she gets the kids jobs at Wanamaker's too. It simplifies the commute, okay? So simple. So now everybody's working six days a week, 12 hours a day. But this is the gig that is going to get Evelyn Nesbitt. Young, beautiful, too young to be exploited like this. But there's a woman artist who is a sketch artist. She's like, I'll pay you a dollar. She gets paid a dollar to sit for five hours. And that's like 28 bucks in today's, like more than mom is. Right. Whoa. Five hours of posing with your clothes on? This is way more lucrative. Yeah,
0: I just have to sit here than
1: working 72 hours a week for me and you and the little brother. And Evelyn's kind of into it too. Like, I can help us out financially, mom. This is great. So Evelyn is starting to go out and pose as an artist model all over Philadelphia. She's got the look that can adapt to a lot of other looks. So I mean, she's beautiful, but she's a child. And I want to stress the child part of this. Mom's paying attention, like making sure nothing improper is happening to her child. And things are looking a little better for the family. By 1900, mom is like, I'm going to New York City. We're going to try to do that same thing there. And mom can't find a job because she's mom. She's mom. But mom does have a lot of pictures of her daughter, Evelyn, and a lot of letters of recommendation from artists from Philadelphia. Evelyn can do the same thing here, and kids are now in New York City, and we got a whole new life, and a whole load of trouble is about to start. Take a breath. I'm just telling you now, take a breath. Everyone is terrible. 1900. Evelyn Nesbitt's 15- cascading chestnut locks. Her rise is unprecedented. Literally, she is the first supermodel. Okay, She's a fashion model. She's a print model. She's everywhere. And she gets there through the help of a number of enormously useful patrons. James Carroll Beckwith, whose main patron is John Jacob Astor, will use Evelyn as a model. Charles Gibson will use Evelyn as a model. Mama's making sure Evelyn's clothes stay on. She's working in the daytime as an artist model with her clothes on. Everything is very respectable. The images that Evelyn is used in are not overtly sexual, but there is a suggestiveness, right? In turn of the century... Photography is becoming a thing. I was going to ask mm-hmm.
0: how widespread cameras were at this point.
1: They're becoming a bigger thing. Okay. So as much as artists love to draw her, she's a natural in front of the camera as well for up-and-coming photographers of the time. And so, all of the photographers of the time were up-and-coming. Well, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place. Starting on the ground floor. Uh-huh. Yeah. So... Evelyn's face is used on images of everything. Calendars, postcards, matchbooks. She's, she is the face of the turn of the century, both in drawing renderings as well as photographs. Right, early photography. That's fascinating. She's featured. She's the first pin-up. She's the first supermodel. Right, talk mm-hmm. about just
0: the timeliness
1: of, right, like, well not only is she right in, place right time. Yeah, advertising everywhere. She's in magazines, Vanity Fair, Cosmopolitan, Ladies' Home Journal, Harper's Bazaar. Like you she is I cannot tell you how extraordinarily popular Evelyn Nesbit is, how meteoric her rise to being America's first supermodel. And she's making some dough. Mama is not passing that dough on to Evelyn. Mm. Child labor and all that. Right. Like a lot of child stars, Evelyn is supporting her family cheerily enough, I guess. Like she wants to be helpful and she's adored for her good looks and well, and it's the way hell, I'm the Gibson girl.
0: Yeah, it's the way things were at the t- I mean, I think today a you know, 15, 16, 18-year-old would would be like, actually, no, Mother, um some of this money needs to be in my bank account, actually.
1: Yeah, no, that didn't that, happen. That was not the way it was so, done. So, in- 1901, modeling's fun, but, you know, she does that in the day. It's a little boring, so. uh Evelyn's gonna go get a job as a chorus girl in this play, Broadway play, called The Floradora. Now, she's a backup chorus dancer. right There are six main featured performers. So she, she is not, not one, one of, them. of them, but she becomes a huge deal on the press. There are like twenty-eight newspapers in New York City at this time. God, that is so remarkable to think about. I'd forgotten that bit of well, like how press media works. And tabloid journal like mm. Evelyn Nesbitt is the first tabloid star. That's why right. we're starting with her. Like it it whoa. Okay. But 28 papers. Everybody's looking for a story all mm-hmm. the time.
0: Content is king.
1: Evelyn's eventually going to leave the chorus for a speaking role in this play called The Wild Rose. We're going to drop Evelyn here. Just for a minute. In the nicer part of the story. Because the scandalous part of the story is not going to happen until the summer of 1906. But let's get that set up. So there's a guy in New York. A really important man. Genius architect. Socially adept, moves in all the circles, connections out the wazoo. His name is Stanford White. He works for a very prestigious firm, McKim. ah, It's another M and White. He's the White. Okay. He literally designs New York City, designs Newport, Rhode Island, uh, he works on 60 projects at a time. He designs the second Madison Square Garden and Tiffany's and the Washington Square Arc. Oh, and the Boston Library and Cornelius Vanderbilt's mansion and the Seven Sister Cottages in Rhode Island. Hmm. Like, whoa. I have a whole follow up, I think, coming on Dirty Digs this week for our trash candy connoisseurs. Anyway, Stanford White, genius architect. He's also married, respectably so, with a son. But the thing that most of New York does not know about Stanford White, genius architect literally building the landscape of the city, is that he is a pedophile creeper. So I want you to think Jeffrey Epstein with a veneer of credibility. Wow. Because Stanford White lives this life of elegance. You
0: did say everyone in this story is a villain except... Oh, so Mm -hmm. Mama...
1: Mama Nesbitt, first Mm -hmm. villain, here's villain number two. Hangs out with important people, does important works, lives a life of elegance, all respectable. I have a wife and a son, and I'm doing all these important things for the city. But in the time that the public doesn't see me, I'm also the president of this little club called the Sewer Club, where me and all of my creepy pedophile friends get together and abuse children. It's so great that they could find each other. So Stanford has secret locations that he calls Snuggeries, located throughout town. And he's always recruiting, looking for more (sighs) children and young people to abuse. And Stanford White's like the hottest thing in New York City. He is three times the age of Evelyn Nesbitt, but sees her performing... In the Floridora one night, and it begins. Stanford White is going to recruit another chorus girl and a former victim to recruit Evelyn into his lair because this chorus girl that he knows is 19. She's far too old. But Stanford White looking for younger girls. Evelyn's 15. He's gone to see her at the Floridora every night. Hey, other lady, invite her to lunch. Mm-hmm. And so Evelyn comes to lunch one day, but there's no one at lunch but Stanford and the 19-year-old and poor 15-year-old Evelyn. And they're in the snuggery. Hey, why don't you come to my secret room? This is fun. And this is the room where the red velvet swing is kept. And there's a hoop that's mounted to the ceiling. And he's like, get on the swing and swing. Here's a parasol. See if you can get the parasol, swing to get the parasol through the hoop. It's creepy and problematic. (laughs) And to me, what looks a lot like grooming and conditioning of mm -hmm. a future victim. Oh, the location of this snuggery love pad is above the first FAO Schwartz toy store in the city. So that's fun. Okay. Okay. But Stanford White, he has power and wealth and he's captivated by Evelyn but since he's seen her at the Floridora and he's 50 and she's 15 and his sights are targeted. So what does Stanford White do? He starts to court mama. Not romantically, but here's everything I can offer you. Here's money and rent and access and I can help you financially and be Evelyn's benefactor. Let me buy your daughter. And yours too. And I'm I'm such a good guy. And I only want to promote you and your family. I really believe in Evelyn's talent. And Mama's like, you betcha. Evelyn initially is less than sold. But Stanford begins conditioning, grooming, working on Evelyn, and acting like the father that Evelyn has lost. Right? Mama and Evelyn call him Stanny. Stanny's helping with the bills and It gets creepy. All right. So, Stanny, after gaining the family's trust and paying their
0: bills. It's always fine when old rich men swoop in to
1: hang out with teenage girls. Hey, Mama. You haven't seen your family back in Pennsylvania for a while. How about I pay for you to take a first-class trip back to visit all your friends? I'll babysit while you're gone. I'll babysit. I'll chaperone Evelyn. She can stay here with me. I'll be a proper chaperone. Whew. And Mama's like... That sounds great. Gets on a train to Philly. That night a chauffeured car comes for Evelyn Nesbitt. Because I'm going to babysit you after all. Yeah. Okay, so. Evelyn gets there and what do you know? There's a photographer there. And a bare rug. And a bunch of costume changes. and Oh, Evelyn, here's a $2,000 kimono. That I brought back just for you from the Orient. Why don't you put it on and lay on that bare rug and... We'll just take some pictures. It'll be fun. Let's play dress up and take some pictures. And it's all fun and games until the next day. When she comes again to be chaperoned, Evelyn thinks there's going to be a big party happening, but no one else is there. There's some champagne. Evelyn will pass out. When she leaves the next morning, Evelyn is no longer a virgin and she's angry and confused with Stanny. Like, I respected you, and how could you do this to me? And Stanny's like, it's all over, babe. You belong to me now. You don't need to pose for anybody. I'll hook you up. You're mine now. So the conditioning, the grooming, continue. No other suitors can get close to her. He's giving her clothes and jewels and, again, buying off Mama. Well, and he's, like, taking her virtue, which
0: was a sort of meaningful thing to women in the day. Like, I'm sure that was a huge blow to her identity, her sense of self.
1: Oh, I'm really about to rock your world. Let's carry on. <sighs> Mama is turning a blind eye to anything improper that may be happening when your 16-year-old daughter is laced in diamonds and going off at only at nighttime with a 50 50-year-old man. Come on. Now... In recounting this tale, I just sounded like more of a rose right then. <laughs> um, Evelyn will say that Stanny is the only man she ever loved. She will call him her benevolent vampire. Hmm. Because they only see, like, he only comes out at night. Yeah, that's... Th- that. <sighs> okay, but he's married, and he has no intention of leaving his wife, and Evelyn isn't the only person he's sleeping with. Right. He's the president of the sewer club. He's sleeping with honeys and snuggeries He's all over the city. Probably also the treasurer of the girls, sewer club. Eight, girls and boys, right? Like, and poor Evelyn Nesbitt, she, I don't want to say has fallen in love because that's, she is a child in yeah. being conditioned by a sexual predator. Yeah. But she believes right. that she is in love. It is a complicated thing it's, that you're I, I don't it's, want yeah. like I don't want to say the wrong but I yeah. want you to understand like she believes he is the love of her life
0: right she is in the midst of this weird mix of being adored and being abused
1: and she's jealous right of all of his other paramours and the abortions that he's paying for for other people. like and you're not spending tonight with me like and he'll pay very well just for the hookup and the honey there but like, she's not the only one. And, I mean, assuredly, he is an architectural genius, but he's also a pedophile. And he sends her to the dentist to fix her chipped tooth. Like, she's a sex toy. He is her everything. And she is just... One of his trophies that yeah. he, will, he will tire of
0: when she reaches a certain age. That's it. It's like... Well,
1: 20 (laughs) yeah so this goes on for a while Stanny is gonna take a trip like he's gonna go fishing for a few weeks and this is when jack barrymore of those barrymores jack will become john right now jack is working as a cartoonist he's been waiting for Stanny to just jack's 18 and like he's a young kid he's handsome and he's been waiting for Stanny to get the hell out of town and he makes this move and evelyn nesbitt is like what You're my age and attractive. And maybe this is better than a gross old man, but I can also make Stanny super jealous. And mama Nesbitt is like, don't rock the boat. We'll immediately send word to Stanny. Who is going to shut this down. Not that Stanny's upset. He's just hands off your mind, right? Like.
0: Hi everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new
1: podcast called PI, People, Influences, and Experiences.
0: Yes, it's sort of the uh, get-to-know-ya at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are, rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married.
1: There's a date one night that happens with Jack Barrymore. Evelyn and Jack fall asleep. It's very Rory and Dean. Yeah, that's... They fall asleep at Miss Patty's dance studio. Sure. And they come home in the morning. And I'll just we just drink too much red wine. And when Evelyn does come to the door in the morning, guess who opens the door? Stanny. Yeah, because mm. mom is called Stanny. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, this will never do. Wait for it. So they decide, mom and Stanny decide it's a great idea to send Evelyn to a girls' convent boarding school. This particular school in New Jersey is run by a Mrs. DeMille, who just happens to be Cecil DeMille's mother. Wow. it spiderwebs. Yeah. So standing across the river is like, I can keep an eye on her from here. So Evelyn is off in New Jersey at a girls' convent school languishing. Not languishing, really, because there's fan mail. There's flowers and fan mail and a lot of attention because she's America's first supermodel. A lot of attention, a lot of fan mail languishing in Cecil B. DeMille's mother's convent boarding school in New Jersey. Okay. <laughs> when you put it like that. So Stanford White, Scott, is eye cross the river. And I'm going to leave Stanford here for now. So I'm going to introduce another player in the Triangle of Villains. Sorry, this is actually a quadrangle, a rectangle, but we're getting to number three. Player. His name is Harry K. Thaw. Harry. Harry Thaw is a very rich heir of a Pittsburgh coal fortune? Coal and oil? I don't know. see his name is Thaw. So you take his product and you put
0: it near a cold thing and it...
1: Okay. He's got like $40 million of a fortune. Wow. And he's kind of known for his antics. His nickname is Mad Harry. Not just because he lights cigarettes with $100 bills, but because he literally is mentally off. He's never right, even from a young age. He does a lot of weird things. He's Mad Harry. And his mom, fourth villain, Mama Thaw, Mother Thaw, yikes, covers up all of his bad behavior, all of his acting out, Whatever bad things he's doing, he has a protector, Mama. Harry Thaw was born in 1871, so he's like 15 years older than Evelyn Nesbitt and 15 years younger than Stanford White. Stanny. Stanny. Here's the thing you need to know Harry Thaw has a mortal enemy, a nemesis. Is it Mr. Freeze? It is Stanford White. Oh. Harry hates Stanford. He has for a long time. Long before Evelyn Nesbitt comes into the picture, Evelyn Nesbitt has nothing to do with the long-standing feud that happens between Harry Thaw and Stanford White. Nobody knows why. Quite like the snow? Mr. Freeze. He's Mr. Freeze. It's Harry Thaw and Mr. Freeze. Harry thinks that Stanford White, Stanny. Has blackballed him from some kind of club somewhere? Would
0: it be the sewer club, perhaps?
1: No. Well, maybe. Maybe. Well, if you're Harry Thaw, you're weird and mentally challenged to begin with, with with some real uh, psychopathy. So maybe Stanford White has less to do with you getting blackballed than you think. But there's like a 15-year age difference between them. And Stanford White is Harry Thaw's obsession. Stanford White pays no attention to Harry Thaw. He calls him a Pennsylvania pug because he's kind of pug-faced. He's like nonplussed, like you're a fucking poser, man. I'm the most famous architect in the world. I'm building New York City and I have a sex club. Back off, man. I don't even have time for you. Like, I'm going to miss my show. Move along. Harry Thaw, obsessed with Stanford White. Will cause a lot of trouble for old Stanny. Long before Evelyn Nesbitt comes into the picture. So on top of the Madison Square Garden, at the time, there's a statue of Diana. The goddess of virginity, right? Diana's naked as a jaybird. Eight stories high. This causes scandal in the city. People are running through the park with their stroller. You can't see anything but Stanford White has built the building and designed Diana. There are a lot of uh, love trysts that happen. I don't want to say love trysts. That's not appropriate. Uh, A lot of pedophile trysts that happen with Evelyn and Stanny up there. Anyway, in New York at the time, Comstock laws are a thing because Comstock is a thing and Comstock is outraged. And he wants Diana taken down and if not taken down, covered up. You want to have any idea who is funding This campaign against Stanford White and his Diana, Comstock is getting tons of money funneled in from Harry Thaw to take down Stanford White with this Diana scandal.
0: That's so devious. I was actually thinking, like, perhaps, I don't know, like the White House at the time or something. Okay. So, Mr. Thaw.
1: Every time. Is out to take out mm -hmm. Mr. Freeze. Yes. Every time he can take him down, he will. He doesn't care how much money he throws at it. He tells everybody he meets, like, hey, I'm Harry Thaw. I hate Stanford White and I will never set foot into a building he has anything to do with. Like, it is his hate for Stanford White is legendary. If I, if I, I just want to make sure this is clear. Is pedophilia
0: not a crime at this point? Because I feel like Mr. Thaw may know things that would really be problematic today. Stick with me. Continue.
1: So, Harry doesn't want to have much to do with New York City because it's Stanford, Stanford Whiteville. Town, yeah. Right. So he's going to stick to Pittsburgh in his secret lair and uh, just plotting against his nemesis, his archenemy. Making heat waves. Mm-hmm. with his own eyes. Lurking in the shadows. And writing fan mail. <laughs> and sending gifts to a girl that is locked away in Mrs. DeMille's convent school for girls. Mr. Freeze's tower. Harry Thaw is writing these letters and sending stockings and a piano and fan mail all day long to Evelyn Nesbitt. Like you do. Using the mystery name of Mr. Monroe. And she's turning all this shit away. She's like, I don't know Mr. Monroe. There are more letters and more gifts and pleading, meet me for dinner. And Evelyn's finally like, the food here on Wednesday is crap. Like, why not? I'll go. Holy cats. Holy cats. Evelyn gets to dinner. Harry Thaw comes in, kisses the hem of her dress, falls to his knees, kisses the hem of her dress. You're the loveliest girl in the galaxy. And Evelyn Nesbitt is like, creep back the fuck off me. And here's Harry Thaw and this big reveal. Ha ha. I'm not Mr. Monroe. I'm Harry Thaw, Pennsylvania rich dude. And I'm here to ride in and rescue you from a fate worse than death. You've been associated with all the wrong people and I'm the right people. And Evelyn Nesbitt is like, it was very nice to meet you, Mr. Thaw. I'm out of here. Bye bye. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. That seems like a lot for a first meeting. It's a lot. A little intense. A little
1: intense. A little, Evelyn's like a little
0: too much. Don't don't want your piano. Like and she either. and
1: Stanny have kind of like broken up by this point.
0: You could start with like a ukulele.
1: She's a little older.
0: You can work up to a piano. Yeah, she's
1: brokenhearted. She and Stanny aren't like what like it's it's fine, but like a didgeridoo would be cool. Alright. Then Evelyn gets appendicitis. And mom can't contact Stanny. To help Evelyn, like, with metal, like, so mm-hmm. mom calls Harry Thaw. Mr. Thaw. Mm-hmm. To get her to the hospital, which will save Evelyn. She lives. Harry has a great idea. Let's all, uh, get Evelyn recuperated by heading off to Europe. Let's all three of us take a trip together. We'll all go to Europe until Evelyn's feeling better. I
0: know when I'm recovering from surgery, I like to be on a boat. Definitely want to go to Europe. like to be on a boat for several weeks.
1: So, they go to Europe. Harry is using his money to show Evelyn. And, like, Harry right now is on his best behavior. So much on his best behavior that mom ends up like, okay, I got to head back to the States now. I got shit to do. But y'all are going to be here in Austria for another two weeks. That That's cool. Evelyn, I'll leave the key under the mat. You know, it's fine. There's a night in Austria where Evelyn will break down and tell Harry, who I think presses her to do it, all the things that Stanford White has done to her. And Evelyn tells him and Harry cries and slobbers and wails and wants Evelyn to relive her trauma over and over and over because this is a bit that they're going to do a bunch because Harry Thaw is fucking horrible but this first night Harry hears all of this and Harry is wrecked you poor child I will love you and you're not ruined let me help you Harry has all the validation he needs that Stanford White is the devil and here Harry can come in and rescue Evelyn and Mama's back in the States, and everything sort of takes a turn at this castle in Austria. where again, we're doing this bit over again, reliving the story. And Harry this time will beat her beat Evelyn with a riding crop and be far crueler to her. I don't know, just as cruel in an alternate way. Like Harry Thaw and Stanford White are doing the same things. They're both models of bad behavior, yeah, and both will view. Evelyn as a possession for them to get out their fucking sadistic Yeah, this is kicks. super awful. So Harry will break Evelyn down enough to make Evelyn feel very grateful that he loves her at all and would want to even marry her. You're used goods, honey. Like, I'm your guy. It, it's terrible. He plays at this for like two years. They are going to get married in April 1905. I'm so sorry, Evelyn. Harry picks Evelyn's dress. I'm so sorry this happened to you. White is the fashion. He picks a dress for her that is black with brown trim. Yikes. Yeah. They marry in Pittsburgh. Fourth villain, Mother Thaw, Harry's mom, is like, you have got to be kidding me. You have married a chorus girl. I guess I'm going to make the best of this, too, just like I've made the best of you, whatever killing animals and like what a, Like he's a bad bad dude <sighs> mother thaw turns into monster mother-in-law evelyn is essentially locked inside the pittsburgh home in her gilded cage acting as a sl- sex slave basically for harry no more acting no more theater no more modeling you are a proper lady and you are never allowed to mention anything that has ever happened In your previous life. And things are okay for like a year. It's the honeymoon period. Harry's there. Mama's watching. He's on his best behavior. He got the girl. He put her in a cage. But he got the girl. And he knows his enemy is terrible. Like I have leverage if I ever need it. Do we let the feud rest? I'm going to guess we don't. No need to push it any
0: further. It's fine. I'm going to guess that's not how it goes.
1: Yeah, not a chance. So, Harry's going to get an idea. Bam. This is 1906, this is about a year into the marriage. Bammy, got a great idea. Let's take a second honeymoon. Let's go back over to Europe. Summer 1906. We're almost to the crime of the century. There's a trip, a second honeymoon trip planned to Europe. But hey, before we take off on the boat, let's go ahead and head to New York like a week. We'll stay in New York a week before we leave on the boat. And Evelyn's like, really? You don't like New York? Because Stanford White built New York. But okay. And they get to New York. And June 25th, Evelyn is going to meet Harry in a bar. When she gets there, Harry's already drunk. He will pay a $3 tab with a $100 bill. There's a dinner. And surprise, Harry says, there's a debut. Of a new show happening at Madison Square Garden, tonight, on the rooftop theater. It's called Mamselle's Champagne, and I got tickets for us for the opening. Neville's like, Madison Square Garden. It's a, that's a, it's a Mr. Freeze building, right? It's Mr. Freeze building, and uh, Mr. Freeze never misses a night at the theater, especially opening night. And uh, he built it, and like, it's in the shadow of the Diana, so I have a lot to do with that building, too, and uh, Harry, you're kind of famously known for never setting foot in any kind of space that Stanley had anything to do with, and who wants to go to the opening of a terrible show's first night? Like, there's probably not anything suspicious, too, that it's June in the city, and Harry Thaw is wearing a long and bulky trench coat, which is covering the rifle he's been toting around all day. Gotcha. Okay.
0: I'm not sensing
1: anything unusual here. Nothing strange is going to happen now, right? So Evelyn and Harry and another couple are at the show, and there's no Stanford White. He hasn't shown up yet. And Evelyn's like, oh, my God, this show is terrible. But we're almost to the end of this terrible show. Like, let's get out of here. Let's just go. Ten minutes before the performance ends, in comes Stanford White. Sits at his reserved table. And Evelyn Nesbitt's like, hey, guys, let's go ahead and beat the traffic out of here. Let's just go. The show's terrible. We're, on, we're at the in the last song. Let's just go. So all four stand up. Like, let's just go now. And they all walk to the elevator. And Evelyn turns around. And Harry is not there. Harry in his trench coat and his rifle are at Stanford White's table, shooting him at Point Blake Range in front of 1,000 witnesses on the rooftop theater of Madison Square Garden. Well. Harry <clears> says, <throat> he ruined my wife. Whoa. Or, he ruined my life. It depends. There are two different sure. tellings of how this may go. Now, I'm not sure what Harry thinks is going to happen here, because it is a fucking pandemonium, right? The crowd is going wild. The band's still playing. The crowd is going wild. There are a thousand people who are like, it's gunshots. Like, yeah. I don't know if Harry thought everybody Is this would. part of
0: the show? Is it, yeah. yeah, like
1: applaud or be like, way to go, dude. That is not what happens. The police arrest Harry immediately. He is sent across the bridge of size to the tombs legendary prison, which isn't really very tough for Harry. Harry's having all of his meals sent over across the bridge from Delmonico's. He has his valet and his butler with him in the tombs. Yeah, a
0: little Instacart action or something.
1: Like white people justice, am yeah, I right? yeah. And Harry thought's lawyers are like, buddy, you are not doing yourself any favors with these photo ops that you're putting in the press about how tough your life is in the tombs with a valet and a butler and dinner from Delmonica. Like, you're not really appealing to the common person here to make yourself not guilty of a first degree murder charge, man.
0: So, Mr. Freeze has been iced.
1: Mr. Freeze has been iced.
0: Mr. Thaw is chilling in the tombs. Chilling in the tombs. With his personal manservants. Fetching him.
1: That's it. It's awesome. The Thaw family is going to hire a powerful, influential attorney named William Jerome, who is a cousin of Jenny Jerome's, by the way. And he's like, "Uh, you'd have to be crazy, To kill someone point blank in front of a thousand people, let's just go ahead and plead you out. Let's use insanity. And Mother Thaw is like, we're not using insanity. My son is not insane. He's the most perfect specimen of a boy that's, like, they have a whole history of family insanity. A fully sane boy. He's the perfect specimen (laughs) of a fully sane boy. But they're like, we're not going to do that. And then they get this other idea. And they want to use this thing called the unwritten law. Which says that, as a man, if another man has ruined the honor of your sister or wife or daughter, you can just kill him. It's the unwritten law. You can just kill him. So, it was a, it was an honor killing
0: of some sort? Sure. Is that the argument here?
1: Now, there is a former cabbie who drove around Stan, Stanford White that says he wasn't surprised it happened. He was just surprised it was a husband who'd shot him and not a father. Wow. Right. So... I mean, it's 1906. Maybe this whole unwritten law thing, you ruined the honor of my wife. Okay. So attorney Jerome is like, I'm just saying, I think it's best to go ahead and plead out insanity. But mother-in-law is like, nope. Here's the plan. We're going to have Evelyn testify to relive all of that trauma we're going to take care of you financially, Evelyn. They bring her into this big room. Like, we're going to take care of you financially. She's promised a million dollars that she never sees. Mm. But hey, we don't want Harry to die on the electric chair. So if you could come in, relive all of your trauma. How mad are they that electricity was common? <laughs> and like, so mad. <laughs> Jerome, William Jerome is completely <laughs> against this. He's like... People don't give this kind of testimony in court. Right. Like, this is a terrible idea. You have all those papers. Like, people don't. This is not what we go to court for. Well, and this will
0: publicly ruin Evelyn.
1: Let's plead him out. I was insane. We'll get him a few years in the asylum. Rest and recover. We're fine. (laughs) They fire (laughs) that attorney. Millions report into Harry's defense. Jerome's fired and off to trial. This is 1907. Okay, here's a fun fact for you. This is the first time in American history that a jury is sequestered. That is how scandalous. That jury selection is front page. This is front page crime of the century. Front page headlines for two years are happening about this trial. Lots of papers. Daily need to print. All of it first sequestered jury in American history. That's how salacious it is. Most of the paper's printing stories about this are just talking about how hot it is and we can't print what we'd like to print because it's too dirty. February 1907. Trial begins. Then it's terrible. And, oh God, here comes Evelyn. Like, it's going badly for Harry. Harry's like, oh, I'm probably going to the electric chair. But here comes Evelyn in her new virginal outfit and provides testimony. And holy cats. Like her testimony is revealing the conditioning and grooming of an abuser. And Stanford White is a leech. And he took advantage of me. And she demonizes her love, Stanny, in order to let her husband not go to the electric chair Jury's in lockdown. It's scandalous. April, trial's closing. There's a, almost a three-hour closing statement. Appealing to the chivalry and knights in soiled armor and all that noise. Like, I'm, I made that up, that part. Like, oh, he had to say, no, you're fucking creep, dude. But anyway, the closing state. like, you would have done the same thing. If it was your wife, your sister, your daughter, certainly you would have made the same decision to dress in a trench coat in the summertime and bring a rifle to the opening night of Madison Square Garden. Jury can't agree there's a mistrial. Harry, back into the tombs. Second trial coming up in 1908. Here's more fun facts. In between the two trials, Harry's family funds a movie called The Unwritten Law. Mm -hmm. wow this is very sophisticated trying to sway the public Mm -hmm. but two years later like 1908 and the public after the daily barrage of all of the story is much less likely after all of these sordid details to be swayed and maybe mad harry you just really are mad harry right second trial harry's declared insane with diminished capacity and he's found not guilty from temporary insanity But he is determined to be insane. So he's going to go to the asylum for like seven years. This time. Monster mother-in-law Thaw is like, you can't divorce him. I'll take care of you financially. I need you to stay with him. But she's not ever going to give Evelyn money. Like, it is minor. Evelyn's still with the family. Evelyn's going to have a kid in 1910 that she says is Harry's from a conjugal visit in the asylum. But... It's not not. ever been proven Mm. one way or another.
0: Mm.
1: Evelyn is kind of out in the cold. The alleged thaw. The divorce does happen in 1915. Okay. Harry gets out. Evelyn and Harry divorce. Evelyn's stuck. She's got nothing. She's got a five-year-old son and now she's on vaudeville because she's still got to support herself. Mm -hmm. But Harry's out. He's had a little time to work on his act too. So he continues to use his Mr. Monroe moniker in the paper to advertise for young men and women. And he invites a young boy named, no lie, Frederick Gump Jr. to New York City to be his protege. And Harry will lock this poor kid in a room and abuse him in terrible ways. Until Frederick Gump, after some time, does escape, Harry's torture is revealed, and guess what? Harry's back off to the asylum for, like, another seven years. Jeez. Evelyn divorces Harry in, like, 1915, in between these two, like, asylum stays. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. Without the promised money from Mother Thaw for saving creeper son Mad Harry from the electric chair... Harry gets out the second time and will continue to advertise for girls in the paper. Harry, I'm done. Good, bad riddance, good rubbish. uh, Good, you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. He'll die at the age of 76 in 1947. Oh, my God. Let's talk about a few more follow-ups. Stanford White is dead. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Charles Gibson is going to keep on drawing and he will end up as the owner of Life Magazine, Hmm. which he is going to sell when he's 65 and retire. And he has a new idea. Guy who's done pen and ink drawings his whole life is going to take up oil painting for fun. And he goes off to his island on the coast of Maine and oil paints for a few weeks and then dies. (laughs) A few weeks after his retirement begins in 1944. It's very sad. Guess painting didn't do it for him. Mama Nesbitt, our first villain of this story, will never let Evelyn see a dime of all the money that Evelyn made, which was like $25,000 a week at the height of her career. Mama just gives it like, Mama just doesn't. Oh, God. Mama abandons Evelyn after the scandal of the trial mom will get remarried and head off to Pittsburgh to where reporters come to her home at later points in her life. And she answers the door and they're like, can you comment on? And she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never met Stanford White. I don't know the man. Classy, classy folks. Evelyn will act on the silent screen. She's going to go on to do some vaudeville. She will remarry, but that, Remarriage is done by 1933, long after the era of the Gibson girl has passed. Evelyn will suffer through numerous addictions. Alcohol, morphine, will sort of destroy herself, but rebuild herself to this relatively calm and peaceful life. She will not relive that tale for anyone anymore once she kind of gets her demons handled. In 1955, Evelyn will... Get about $10,000 for being a consultant on that movie called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing. Oh, the thing that Evelyn says about this is that Joan Collins' boobs were too big. Everyone's a critic. Evelyn's going to end up living in California with her son and his family. She'll open a ceramics and pottery studio. She lives to the age of 82. She dies in 1967. That is mostly the story. Of Evelyn Nesbitt, a child who was terribly taken advantage of by wealthy men with power and access and money who were caught in some kind of weird war with each other. And poor baby girl Evelyn is in the middle of it all. Like, smart kids do stupid things. But what kind of shot do you have? You've got a sexual predator, highly skilled, 35 years older than you, buying off your mother. hmm And here's a Harry Thaw lunatic... Intent on inflicting his own kind of trauma. Like poor Evelyn. She's continually betrayed by the people that she trusts in. Not just her, like everyone, everyone around her. She's consumed by men in the worst of ways and will rise to come to a happier place in life. Evelyn Nesbitt says plain girls are the happiest. I don't I, She may be right. So Evelyn Nesbitt... Just like the Gibson girl, both did rock civilization for a minute. Even though Evelyn's life, in no way resembles that perfect archetype of what the feminine should have been. I think we're going to find that in in Mm -hmm. this series that the archetype and the reality girl who lived was that archetype. The stories do not align. The era of the Gibson girl will come to a close as World War I ends. It runs from turn of the century, right, till like 1918 because society's changing and the optimism that was happening in the Gilded Age is replaced by a post-war generation looking for something very different. Women have been doing it. Uh, sisters are doing it for themselves. Like men have been at the front for four years. We haven't had to... Ask men or use our powers to obtain anything from you. You've been gone. We've done it ourselves. And uh, we're going to call those girls flappers. And we're going to talk about them next week when we continue American Woman. That was quite a thing. That was a hell of a story, right? Yeah. I mean, so I- you kind of get the idea of the archetype and then a, sure. a, a story. Sure. No, um,
0: that, I mean, that's an upsetting story, but. Oh, it's terrible. Um,
1: it's terrible.
0: But I'm glad that she lived to a ripe old age in.
1: 82, and opened a ceramic piece, yeah. studio. Like she lived in just kind of a hidey hole. Like she was just unpretentious. Never talked about those days and sort of stayed off the grid. Was always kind of in a secret. Like after you've had that kind of fame and exposure. Lay low. Yeah.
0: I'm well, sure. the story uh, of Evelyn
1: Nesbit. That's the story you didn't even know that you wanted to know that probably will terrify, you know? Yeah.
0: All right. Well, wow. Yeah. Now I'm just furious. So
1: no, she was a victim. Mm-hmm. She was a victim in so many ways of mm-hmm. powerful crap ass men around her that. Yeah. And not protected by her mother and not, not
0: protected by her mother-in-law Mm-mm. and not.
1: Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. No, but does very much rise from the ashes, from addiction, from mm-hmm. the things that she does to leave a you know, yeah. lead a relatively peaceful, happy life, making yeah. pottery in my little ceramic studio. Yeah. Probably helping California. out with grandkids, yeah. 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 There you go. Crime of the century. <laughs> Evelyn Nesbitt, Stanford White, Harry Thaw, or Mr. Freeze and Mr. Thaw, Mm -hmm. as they will forever be known in your imagination. My guess is that every decade has a crime of the century. Probably. I think I'm finding them as I go along. There's so many stories. Like, I could go way more than five in this series. I've pinned it down to five for December. Sure. But yeah, we're going to come back next week with the feminine archetype of the flapper, And talk about what that gal looks like. thanks everybody for tuning in yeah y'all are the very best i hope you enjoyed that have a fantastic tuesday dance around with your taco wash your hands
0: ah before the taco and after the taco because obviously tacos are messy
1: yeah you're gonna need to take your mask off only to eat the taco then put it back on Mm -hmm. and while you're doing all of that do it with an entirely trashy heart that's really good advice Thanks, everybody. We love you so much. We appreciate your support. Y'all are the very, very best. Have a great day. Bye, y'all. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia, by us, Stacey and Alicia. With a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our
0: art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's Store on Instagram.